Hello, I'm Chris Kreitu, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is a news episode for Rust 1.24. With apologies for this being over a week late, I have been both sick and swamped with work. Let's dive right in. It's mostly the usual with this release. Lots of small changes and small wins. There's one really big win landing, but first, a few highlights from the smaller pieces. The Rust compiler now defaults to doing builds with 16 parallel code gen units for release builds. What this means is that the compiler splits up the LLVM code generation process into 16 pieces and runs those in parallel to whatever extent it can. The upside of this is that build times can be significantly faster, because LLVM code gen is something like half of the work that the Rust compiler does to go from your code to a finished binary. The downside is that the compiled executable can be slightly slower, because LLVM doesn't have quite as much insight into your whole code base, and therefore into some of the optimizations that might be available. Since there's a trade-off there, this is a configurable option. You can set the number of code gen units to 1 when you're doing a build, and you'll wait a little extra time for the build to finish, but in exchange, you'll get the absolute fastest possible executable on the other end. Or you can trade that little bit of runtime performance for faster rebuild cycles. Another little performance win, the stir find char where char is the type of stir find there, function got an improvement under the hood that should speed up anytime you use it by a factor of 10 or so. Yes, a 10x speed improvement for it most of the time. And those are the small performance wins. As of this release, we have a big win in terms of the performance for you as a developer, at least. Cargo defaults to using incremental compilation by default for all non-release builds. Incremental compilation means that Rust no longer needs to rebuild every part of your crate just because you added a print line macro invocation in one part of your crate. It now only recompiles the things it actually needs to, and it does this by storing the results of its previous builds in a cache and then leaning on that wherever it can. Now, work on this is far from done, but this is a huge step in improving the experience of working with Rust on a day-to-day basis. In terms of the real-world impact, when you're using incremental compilation, your first build will be similar to what it was before. It, It will sometimes even be slower than it was before, because it has to create those cache artifacts for use in later builds. However, after that, you can expect to see fairly dramatic increases in compile times uh, compared to a non-incremental rebuild. In other words, compared to what we've all had for years now. Compiles might take anywhere from half as long all the way down to a fifth or a tenth as long. And this remains a big focus for this year, so you can expect to see this continue to improve. But having a rebuild take a tenth as much time, that would be amazing. Again, note that this is only enabled for development, that is, non-release builds. For any kind of release build, you want to throw everything at that build in the smartest way possible. And that means turning off incremental compilation, again, to give LLVM all those passes it needs with the whole compile artifact together, so that it can do the best optimization it can. The net of all these changes but especially of incremental compilation, is that stable Rust should just be dramatically nicer and faster to work with in terms of your compile and test cycle now. Next up, let's talk about the 2018 Roadmap RFC. 
in the weeks since the last Rust release, there was a concerted effort to figure out the game plan for this year's development cycle. As I noted in the last news episode, the core team took a slightly different tack this year than in previous years. They solicited input not only via the normal RFC process, but also through community blog posts. And that proved to be a smashing success. There were something like 100 blog posts that were part of the conversation. Aaron Turan, one of the core team for Rust, did the work to read through all of those blog posts, which was a lot of work, and he then synthesized them into a draft of the RFC for the 2018 roadmap, and then solicited further input on the text of that RFC from the community, just as normal. The result is a nice, tight story that basically picks up on a theme from a bunch of the different blog posts that circulated. Let's make 2018 something like a continuation of the late 2017 impl period. Let's finish a lot of the things we already have in flight. With that as the overarching meta goal, the major focal goals for 2018 are going to be shipping an epic release, Rust 2018. We'll talk about that in a minute. Building resources for intermediate Rust stations connecting and empowering Rust's global community, and growing Rust's teams and new leaders within them. Those are still pretty high level, so at the more on-the-ground level, the Rust community is going to go after those by targeting specific domains, which we can bring to a really high level of polish this year. Web services, WebAssembly, CLI apps, that is command line interface apps, and embedded devices. And those are not the only things going, of course, but they represent the core of the focus for work this year. Other things include further work on language features that are already in Nightly, things like the non-lexical lifetimes or, wow, using match expressions with references just got way easier. Things like tooling improvements and continuing to push hard on builds times. Those are also part of this overall roadmap. You should really read the whole thing. And compile times in particular are also explicitly called out in the full text of the RFC, even though they're not one of those areas of focus. So the fact that there are some core emphases doesn't mean that other things are going to get dropped. It just means that those are the places where the most emphasis is going to go this year. Now, as I said a second ago, one of the major points discussed by the RFC is the concept of a Rust epoch, and we're going to dive in and talk about this in some detail. This is part of Rust's still-developing strategy for stability without stagnation. We've gone through now almost three years of completely backwards-compatible releases, 25 releases since 1.0, and the language has evolved an astounding amount over that time. Rust 2018 marks not a departure, but a thoughtful continuation of this theme. It's an epoch, E-P-O-C-H, an era in history, and it marks the start of the next chapter for Rust. And Rust 2018 really represents two distinct, though they are closely related, things. A technical step and a marketing step. Let's talk through what the epoch means in that order. Technical, then marketing. Technically speaking, a Rust epic has two major things going on. One is the possibility for a backwards-compatible breaking change. Yes, you heard that right. I'll explain in just a second. Second, the ability to bring together the whole ecosystem into a kind of technical coherence. So, backwards-compatible breaking changes? That sounds impossible, right? Well, no. Let's start with the motivation, though. One thing that everyone generally recognizes is 
that it's desirable to be able to use the lessons learned as you develop a programming language to continue to improve language design. And there are significant problems with permanent backwards compatibility. Ask C, or JavaScript. There are parts of both of those languages that A, effectively no one uses, and B, everyone effectively wishes no longer existed. However, neither language, and especially JavaScript, wants to introduce breaking changes, and for good reason. Code written decades ago still has to work. On the web especially, that's one of the fundamental commitments that all the standards bodies and browser vendors mostly share, at least as concerns JavaScript. Don't break backwards compatibility. Over time, though, this leaves you painted into corners by language design decisions made many years ago that you cannot undo, even when a decade of using those features leaves you convinced that they were a bad or even a terrible idea. But the flip side of all of that is that there are also really serious potential problems for making breaking changes to a language. If you want a really good example of this, look at Python. It's been a decade since Python 3 came out, and the community-wide transition from Python 2 still isn't done. The transition path for a huge amount of that time simply wasn't smooth enough. It was just too costly for people to convert their libraries to Python 3, and early on it was very difficult to ship Python libraries that worked with both Python 2 and Python 3. So we're caught on the horns of a dilemma. We can either maintain backwards compatibility, even when we see opportunities for really significant improvement so that we don't break our users or split the community, or we can make a breaking change, even, even one that most people agree does improve the language, but which imposes major transition costs and effectively splits the community. We think, as a Rust community, that we have a third way. This is something like the running theme for Rust. That third way is the introduction of an epoch, which is a marker for a set of parsing-level breaking changes. And then we can set a flag on a per-project basis that tells the Rust compiler, parse and compile this crate with the rules for this epoch. The 2015 epoch is the only one that has existed to date. With Rust 2018, we'll now be able to say, parse and compile this crate with Rust 2015 rules or with Rust 2018 rules. And implied in what I just said, but worth making explicit, is that the Rust compiler will maintain support for all previous epochs parse modes, and the compiled output between all epochs will remain compatible with each other. In very practical terms for language design and use, that means that we can introduce new keywords, we can stop treating certain old keywords as keywords, and we can make tweaks to make certain other kinds of declarations valid, which weren't before, and vice versa. But the compiled output of whatever tweaks we make for Rust 2018 will work alongside compiled output from what we, again, now might retroactively call the Rust 2015 epoch. So Rust, you wrote in a crate that you felt was basically finished back in 2015 on Rust 1.2 or something, can be a dependency of Rust 2018 code. Even more interestingly, if you want to go back and update that, perhaps because it was using a long pre-1.0 version of Serday, you would continue to write Rust 2015 style code while updating to use a version of Serday that was written in Rust 2018. In other words, we get to make small, carefully considered, breaking changes to the surface syntax of the language without breaking backwards compatibility. This is Rust's stability without stagnation mantra taken to a whole new level. And to be fair, this doesn't cover every kind of backwards incompatible change you ever might want to make to a language. 
deep changes to semantics still aren't viable. If for some unfathomable reason, Rust wanted to throw away its core notion of ownership and the borrow checker and everything that goes with that, well, that would obviously be the kind of breakage this thing would not and could not solve. But for the kinds of ergonomic improvements and tweaks that are now fairly obviously desirable based on the community-wide developments that have occurred since Rust 1.0, we can solve those. The other technical piece of an epoch is the opportunity to bring the ecosystem back into a degree of synchrony. The last three years have seen enormous exploration and growth, both in the broader Rust ecosystem as well as in the Rust language itself. The nearly constant change in the language itself over that time has been amazing, but it also means that it's easy for different pieces of the ecosystem to be moving at different speeds. For example, just keeping all of the documentation in sync with the language and standard library is hard to manage, even just keeping it technically accurate, much less trying to keep everything up to date in terms of what is idiomatic. An epoch gives us a chance to focus on that kind of whole system coherence. The push up to Rust 1.0 had a lot of that kind of focus. It was important to present a unified and interesting story about Rust had to offer now that it had reached a point of stability, and to make it as easy as possible for someone coming in to check it out now that it had hit 1.0, and say, oh, here are how the pieces fit together, I see. The goal, then, is something of a repeating process of intentional fragmentation and experimentation, followed by coming back together with the shared solutions and results of that fragmentation and experimentation into a coherent whole. That dynamic can be incredibly powerful. We've already seen some of the fruit of that in the 2017 impulse period, and... As I suggested at the very beginning, 2018 is shaping up to be a whole year of impel period style focus, and I think it's going to yield huge dividends. Among other things, it means landing all those efforts the Rust 2018 roadmap RFC outlined. It also means polishing up a new version of Rust's documentation tooling and landing solid 1.0 versions of Rust format and improving the reliability and utility of the Rust language server and bringing all the documentation up to date, hopefully including the reference. That's a lot of things to do, but when you bring them all together, it has a really powerful effect. And that powerful effect includes some some really nice marketing effects. The idea of an epic lets us use all that technical and ecosystem coherence to help quote-unquote sell Rust. There are lots of people out there who've looked at Rust and decided it was too immature for their use case. And in many cases, that was fair. It was a reasonable decision. But Rust has changed a lot in the last few years, in a lot of ways, from the availability of stable libraries in the ecosystem to the ease of learning and using the language itself, to the quality and usability of tooling and editors, and to lots of other ways as well. And it's useful, therefore, in driving adoption of Rust to let people know about all of that, all of the ways things have really dramatically improved in the last couple of years. So the other thing Rust 2018 does, any epoch in the future likewise, is give us a place to showcase all those kinds of improvements across a bunch of different fronts. That goes for all sorts of things, and one of those I've been looking forward to the longest is bringing a unified and coherent design language to all of the Rust web properties, and using that design language for a revamped and more useful Rust landing page, with better explanations of how to use Rust, how to get involved in the community, what what the selling points are for the language, and so on. 
So as we land the Rust 2018 Epic, and if you've been wondering this whole time, when does that start? It's probably with Rust 1.29 in early fall this year. We'll have a coherent story to tell people about the value proposition of Rust and why they might look at it again if they've looked at it in the past and found it wanting. So that's a look at what's coming in Rust in 2018, as well as this particular Rust 1.24 release. Thanks, as always, to this month's sponsors. I really appreciate everyone who gives everything from a dollar all the way up to the largest contributors I have. The sponsors who contributed at least $10 were Aaron Turon, Alexander Payne, Anthony Deschamps, Chris Palmer, Benam Esfabod, Dan Abrams, Daniel Collin, David W. Allen, Hans Fjallamark, John Rudnick, Matt Rudder, Nathan Scully, Nick Stevens, Peter Tillemans, Olaf Leidinger, Olushei Sonaya, Rafe Levine, Vesa Kailavirta, and Zachary Snyder. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up ongoing support at patreon.com slash neurostation or send a one-off contribution my way at any of a number of other services listed at neurostation.com. The site also has scripts and code samples for most of the teaching episodes and news episodes, along with transcripts for many of the interviews and full show notes for every episode. The notes for this episode are at neurostation.com slash show underscore notes slash news slash rust underscore one underscore 24. If you're enjoying the show, please do help others find it. You can tell them in person. You can share it on social media. You can make the Hacker News or Reddit threads explode, or you can rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory. You can find the show on Twitter at NeuroStation, and you can follow me there at Chris Kreitcho. Do tweet at me with news in particular for episodes like this. You can also respond in the threads, as mentioned on Reddit or Hacker News, or also in the Rust user forums. And this really is my favorite. I love getting email, so send me a note at hello at neurostation.com. Until next time, happy coding. I cannot talk.